Well, glad to see everybody back out this evening. Please do continue to remember the meeting. Um, I won't do my Wes impression again, but keep the meeting in mind. Um, and also remember, if you want to come out next Saturday afternoon, um, Jeremy uh, is going to be here and going to go around in the neighborhood, just right around in the local area for maybe an hour or so, and uh, you know, put out some announcements that we're having the meeting. So if you'd like to be involved in that, uh, uh, please be here next Saturday afternoon. Without any further delay, open with me, if you will, to the book of Jeremiah. And I'm going to go back and take a lesson, as I said I would do throughout this year, not really trying to teach the book of Jeremiah, the whole book, or anything like that, but really just looking at almost some encapsulated views um, from the book that I think are very pertinent to today. I uh, was telling somebody a few days ago that the more you study Jeremiah, and I, I have studied it a little bit the last couple of years uh, yet again, but the more I look at it, it's almost a commentary on, not that I believe in any premillennial idea that it is talking about the United States, but I tell you, if you look at the book and you look at the state of the people, it, it very much serves as an example um, we tend in many respects to fit the description. Now, that may sound harsh, and you might look at the book and even some of the things we'll say tonight and say, no, I don't think things are that bad, and yet at the same time, um, we might want to look again. And that's a challenge to righteous people, as God will do in this what is often called the temple address. God will challenge his people. He will paint, as he does throughout the book, a very realistic, straightforward picture of the way things are, of the way he sees his people, and really of the consequences of being as they are. And um, so it challenges you if you are, if you consider yourself a Christian, a righteous person, it challenges you to be different, to step out from the crowd, the herd, so to speak, and, and be different, to stand up for what you know is right. So as we look at this, and if you'll look with me at the first couple of verses, the word did come to Jeremiah from the Lord and said, stand in the gate of the Lord's house. And that's why it's often called the temple address. God told him to go to the temple itself and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah that enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. And so God was calling his people, those who enter in at the gate to worship the Lord, God was calling them um, and, and addressing them through the prophet Jeremiah. Now I want to break this lesson up, and if you notice on your outline, there are only two main points to the lesson. I want to break it up uh, into two parts, and, and you notice that the title of the lesson is Trust in Lying Words. And uh, you know, that, while we look at that, we're like, well, wait a minute, what do you mean trust in lying words? Believe lies, etc. No, but that is the tone of the chapter. That's the main theme of God's address here. The fact that those who enter in at the gates to worship the Lord, in fact, are a people who trust in lying words. So I want to break it down into two parts. And first of all, I'm going to talk about God's call to them to a conditional forgiveness. That God is willing to forgive anyone, but it's conditional, based on what they do. 
And so as God immediately begins to call them, and if you look down to verse 3, and incidentally, the second part, I'll come back to exactly what the lying words is all about. And I'll talk a little bit about that at the end of the lesson. But if you look at verse 3, you can see that several times, even in this chapter and, and elsewhere also, but in this chapter, God will say to them, if you look at verse 3, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways. We're going to talk a little bit about this very idea in next Sunday morning sermon. And obviously, originally, before I changed and decided to do what I did this morning, this was going to be almost the second part of, uh, of what I'll do next Sunday morning now. But they'll stand on their own, uh, each one of them. But anyway, amend your ways, and notice, amend your ways and your doings. And I will cause you to dwell, and the idea is to live peaceably and continue to live in this place. You notice that it's conditional. That God is saying your ways, your doings, not only what you're doing, but what you are. What you have become as a people. What you have become as individual persons is not right. And it needs to change. And if if you do change, I will go on blessing you. And I think the idea throughout the book of Jeremiah is that they are so far gone that their doom is really on the horizon And even as Jeremiah writes this book, Nebuchadnezzar, and I'm not going to talk a lot about that historically, but Nebuchadnezzar will continue to come in wave after wave against them, and they will be utterly destroyed and removed, exiled from the land. But now God at the beginning is calling them to change. Amend your ways and your doings, and I'll bless you. I'll cause you to dwell in this land. A lot of times people are quick, and I'm one of those. I can be very cynical, and I'll look around and I'll say, it's too late for so-and-so. It's too late for, you know, this, for that, for a nation, for a person, etc., etc. And I'm very hypercritical of myself in some of those things. And yet, I have to remind myself and remember that God has the ability, God has the power to change things way beyond what we can even conceive. And so God is saying to his people, you know, I have the ability, I have the power. It is not that I cannot change things and bless you, but it's conditional and you are going to have to change. You can't just simply want things to be better and you can't just simply want a blessing from me and it will happen. And, you know, I as a preacher or Wes or any of the rest of us who teach, we would be doing someone a disservice to try to preach just simply a positive message and never attach any conditions to it. That God is a good God and He's going to bless you with everything and you really don't have to meet any conditions to receive that blessing. That's not what the Bible teaches. And you can see that here. Amend your ways, amend your doings, and I'll cause you to dwell in this place. You see it again in verse 5. Let's read a couple of other verses just to reinforce it. If you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, verse 5... If you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor. So you notice that. I'm calling for complete change is what God would be saying. Uh, Go down to, uh, or go over if you will. I knew verse 18 didn't sound right. Go over to chapter 18. And I want to grab a verse out of this chapter. I'll stay a lot in the book of Jeremiah. So you may want to just uh, open to that book and stay with me. But look at chapter 18 and verse 11. When God says it like this. Now therefore go to and speak to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, 
I frame evil against you and devise a device against you. Return you now everyone from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. Now I want you to think about that verse for a moment. God intends to bless, but it's conditional. You do what you're supposed to do. You be what you're supposed to be, and I will bless you. But when we as a person or as a nation... When we get off track, when we've wandered away from God, when God would have to say to us, return, go back, be converted, turn around your life, etc., etc., or as a nation, the same thing. Notice that God, let me back up and say it this way. You and I can be pushed, we can be angered by what someone else is doing. And we can... You know, bear with someone and bear with someone and put up with something or whatever for any length of time, but we get enough. And we, generally speaking, when we really turn on someone, that is, we cut them off, we withdraw ourselves from them or whatever, it is usually a, I've had enough. But you have to understand, that is not God. We may see God vent his wrath in the word of God, but understand that behind that is this long-standing build-up to it. I remind you, I won't turn there, but I remind you of a couple of passages. Genesis 15, Abraham, you can't have the land yet because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Fourth generation from you, Abraham... That's what I estimate, that's what I say it will be, and then you can go in and get the land. You realize God was framing, to use Jeremiah's language, God was framing an evil against the Amorites, devising a device against the Amorites, planning to execute judgment against the Amorites roughly about 500 years before it came about. God is a patient God. God will forbear with people. But you have to understand that you, as you are living your individual life, as you are doing the things you're doing without regard for what is right, without real intent and, you know, change in your life, that God begins to frame an evil that may or may not take place. And when I say an evil, I mean a judgment. And that's the idea of the term here. That God begins to frame a judgment against you that may or may not take place, but it will depend upon what you do in your life. In other words, you can stem that, you can turn that judgment, but if you continue on the course that deserves that judgment, you're going to get it, is the point. And so God is saying to the people here, I am very carefully looking at what you're doing. And the end result of what you're doing right now is judgment. You would look at it as an evil or a very bad thing that's coming. One more verse. Look at chapter 26 and down in verse 13. When God says, Therefore now amend your ways and your doings and obey the voice of the Lord your God, notice, and the Lord will repent, that is, He will change, of the evil that He had pronounced against you. We talked about, we've been studying downstairs, just concluded a study of the repentance of God and how God changes, but always conditionally and always based on what we do. God is saying here, I've pronounced it. It is going to happen. And the only way you can stop it from happening is you change. 
But really, are we unlike that? We're created in God's image. Don't we, generally speaking, with the people we love, do the same thing? Something is, you know, a relationship is going bad. I mean, that can be between, you know, two people that are married or in love with each other or a parent and a child or a friend and a friend. But we began to perceive this is not going in the direction it needs to go. And we began to plan ahead as it were. Oh, we can get mad and bam, I've had enough of you. We can do it like that. But a lot of times, especially with the people we love the most, we're thinking ahead. And we're thinking, if things don't change, quote-unquote, I will do so-and-so, or I'll be forced to do such-and-such. That's what God is saying here. So go back with me to the temple address, and let's look at the nature of what was going on. Because it really is an interesting address and an interesting commentary, as it were, on the way people can be. As we look at Jeremiah 7, you'll notice one of the things that he says, and I'll come back to some of this, but just notice that in the, the, the address, the whole tone of the address had to do with what he will say next. So if you look with me at Jeremiah 7 and down in verse 4. Again, he has said, amend your ways. But verse 4, trust you not in lying words saying. Notice, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. When I look at that address... I look at it from the standpoint that what God is saying... As a matter of fact, turn over to the book of Micah. And I'll just go ahead and read Micah. And look with me at, at uh, Micah chapter 3. forgot for a moment where Micah was. But Micah chapter 3. And notice something similar. And let me read a couple of verses there. Micah 3 and go down with me to verse 8. Where he says, but truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and of judgment and of might to declare unto Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Hear this, I pray you, I beg you, ye heads of the house of Jacob and princes of the house of Israel, notice that have whore judgment and pervert all equity. They build up Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. He speaks to the leaders here in verse 11. The heads thereof judge for reward. I don't know if you've been listening to all that is going on in the election, and it's depressing. You may just not want to listen to it. But charge after charge after charge after charge of people using positions of power for personal gain. I was sitting the other day and watching one of these, and it had gone on for an hour or so, and I thought to myself, you know the term that I have not heard in I don't know when? is servant of the people. And that's what it was supposed to be about. A position of service. The heads thereof judge for reward. The priests thereof teach for hire. When we talk about preachers who preach for the hire, the money, sell out their convictions, willing to preach whatever you want. It's almost like, you know, let me just pull the audience and see what they want to hear. And I'll preach that because it's popular. Or as Paul talked about, you know, preachers that will, or teachers that will tickle the ears of individuals. Priests thereof that teach for hire. Prophets thereof divine for money. Yet will they lean upon the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? None evil can come upon us. That's what he's saying. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. They do all of these things. 
They, they do it for the, the gain, the personal gain. And yet at the same time, the message they preach is that you can lean on God. You can count on God. God's got a big shoulder. You can, you know, big pair of strong arms. How much do we hear that today? And you can count on God. God is for you. God is behind you. Is not the Lord among us. No evil can come upon us. And therefore shall Zion, for your sake, be plowed as a field, God is saying. And notice how he says it, for your sake. Sometimes people are so far gone in their self-delusion, and I'll come back to this idea, but they are so far gone that the only good thing that can be done for them is to destroy them. Now that may sound totally contradictory. But when a nation has reached a point, and the Bible is replete with examples of this, when a nation has reached a point that it cannot be saved, it must be ended. And for the good of the innocents that would go on suffering, it has to be. And so God said, for your sake, I will plow your nation as a field, and Jerusalem will come, become heaps, like a, you know, like a, a, a city dump. And the mountain of the house is the high places of the forest. I'll raise it to the ground. So when we go back to Jeremiah 7, what God is saying is, what's happened in this nation is all the things he's about to enumerate. And yet, the mindset of the people is to go down to the temple, and notice he's addressing the people walking in through the gates. And he said the mindset of the people is to do everything they're doing and yet to walk into the temple and be impressed with the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord are these. This place belongs to God. Therefore, this place generally is safe. Well, that ain't so. And God will sacrifice what belongs to him for the greater good. And if we don't understand that, if we don't believe that, then as an individual we're in trouble, and certainly as a nation we're in trouble. By all means, as a world, are we in trouble. So God says, go down and address these people. When you look at these people, the people lived extremely immoral lives. They were a people who went to the temple. Obviously, you could catch them, as we would say today, going to church. Church attendance, I mean, a lot of people still go to church, even in our country. They went to the temple, but their lives were completely immoral. And when you look at the things that he says, let's just read a description of it. Go down to, uh, let me start it, we'll just start at verse 5. If you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment, notice, between a man and his neighbor. What's he talking about? Just treat each other fairly. I, I was telling Montel, you know, I, I'm in a habit of, I, ha, I have my bill full with the larger bills in my back pocket on the left, and I'm in the habit of carrying small bills on the right, and I reach in my pocket if I want to pay for something very quickly or whatever. I dropped in McDonald's, very quickly, and I had my bills, and I pulled them out of my back pocket. I think the order was $3.20, if I remember, and so I counted off four ones. Well, while I did that, I had a $5 bill that floated down to the floor. Now, it floated down to the floor right in front of my feet, so I just went ahead and counted off the last $1 bill and paid for it. 
Out of the corner of my eye, I see the woman that's standing over at the next cash register quickly. And I look over at her. Like, what are you doing? You know? And I say, did you drop that? No. I said, well, I did. And so she hands it to me and quickly walks away. I'm like, lady, please. If you had dropped the $5 bill, I would have been saying, hey, ma'am, you dropped your $5 bill. I wouldn't have gone down like a buzzard and grabbed it off the floor. Executing judgment between a man and his... You know, it's just treating people fairly, decently. They didn't do that back then, and people don't do that today. We all have stories of road rage, probably on a daily basis. People don't treat each other decently. They just don't even have common courtesy. I just talked about that in a lesson, so I won't get back up on that stump again. But that's what he's saying here. He's saying to the people, let's just start with how you treat each other. Notice as he goes on here, the first part of verse 6. If you oppress not the stranger, notice that, the visitor. You know, it used to be, and I know a lot of you, just like me, I was raised when you have a visitor. And that doesn't mean, if, you know, if it comes into your house, they come into your school, they come into your city, whatever. You treat that, you put forth that little extra effort to welcome them. I mean, that's the way it used to be. The fatherless, the orphans. I mean, we looked at that and we said, you know, would I like to be in that situation? Or would I like to have compassion on such a person who is in that situation? The fatherless, the widow. We all can understand people lose loved ones and it puts them in a difficult situation. I remember years ago, the first place I preached, I was, I was young and I was in a lot better shape than I am even now. But there was a lady and she in the community and she lost her husband. And I knew, you know, he lived right around the corner. They lived right around the corner from the church building. And so I knew when she lost her husband that the guy that got out there every week and mowed her grass was suddenly gone. And I remember going up to her and saying, you know what? If you don't mind, I'll cut your grass for you today. And she just broke down. It's like, it's amazing to have somebody offer to do that. But you think about it. And I thought about it back then. I'm 20 now. I'm going to be 70 or 80 one of these days. God willing. And I'd like some younger person to have some compassion on me. God looked at these people and said, if you oppress not, which means they were. They were oppressing the visitor, the orphan, the widow. Notice, shedding innocent blood in this place. We'll come back and address that in a moment. Just the immorality that was going on with these people. Go over with me to chapter 22 very quickly. And let me grab a verse from that chapter. Look down at verse 3. Ah, I knew that didn't sound right. 22 and verse 3. Thus says the Lord, execute you judgment and righteousness and deliver the spoiled out of the hand of the oppressor. Do no wrong. Do no violence to the stranger. That's what he's talking about here. That's what was going on. No violence to the stranger, the fatherless, or the widow. Neither shed innocent blood in this place. They were a mean people. I mean, let's just be honest about it. They were mean. They were people that hurt other people, and then they ran down to the temple to worship. You know, you have to ask yourself, how do I treat other people? How do I, am I mean? Am I a nasty person? And I'm talking about nasty in the sense of just being mean-spirited toward people. 
Do I treat them fairly? Do I treat them like I'd want them to treat me? Or do I just set about every day treating people horribly? I think if you think about that, you might say your first inclination might be like mine. I'm not a mean person. Then you get to thinking to maybe how you treat certain people in certain situations. And at the very least, you say, you know, I could do a lot better job. I could treat people a lot better than I do. You go on and you look at this. Their daily life, even as he's describing here, read with me from the end of verse 6. Their daily life was one that was just filled with all kinds of sin. All, all kinds of immorality. They shed the innocent blood in this place. But notice this. Neither walk after other gods to your hurt. Then will I cause you to dwell in this place, verse 7, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely? And the idea of swearing falsely to lie, even when it comes to oaths and vows? Will you burn incense unto Baal and walk after other gods whom you know not? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered to do all these abominations? Will you do that? And God is saying you do. Is this house, verse 11, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. And you remember that whole den of robbers or den of thieves there? That's exactly what Jesus said the temple had become in his day 800 years later or 600 years later. That's what we do as people. That's what human beings can do. That's where we can get to. We can get so turned around, mixed up, messed up in our lives that we will steal, we will kill, we will commit adultery, we will lie, we will hurt innocent people, we will be mean, and then we will run down to church and talk about how much we love the Lord. And that's exactly what they did. You drop down to verse 30 in Jeremiah 7. And you hear God say, For the children of Judah have done evil in my sight, saith the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house, which is called by my name, to pollute it. Now, I know that has a lot of meanings, but let me tell you what I think about when I read that verse. They have set their abominations. I am aware, and it's been years ago now, but I am aware of some conversations by text and so forth that took place here during a worship service where a couple of people were texting back and forth about committing fornication in the middle of the worship service. That's what people do. That's how far people drift away from having their minds set on God. You see, when I read verse 30, they were setting their abominations. They were setting them up. Abomination is a disgusting thing. Do you think that when we are talking about Jesus' sacrifice, like was being talked about this morning, Jesus giving his life, shedding his blood, etc., when that is going on, a discussion about that, or perhaps the memorial service itself, and two people are sitting and texting each other back and forth about committing fornication, do you think that's disgusting? Do you think God finds it disgusting? And that's what God is saying to these people. Now, I know it means other things as well. But I'm certain that God is also talking about what takes place in the mind, what people intend to do. And they don't, they don't separate it when they walk through the doors. 
That is just the life, the doings, the ways of people. You notice as he goes on here, they were an immodest people, an immoral people. As you continue to read about their activity, I want you to go back a page or two with me to chapter 5. And let's read this in chapter 5. And oh, let me go on and start in verse 7. He speaks of the adultery. And the book, I could could have cited a dozen passages that would be like this in the book. So I take it that adultery was a great problem in Judah at this time. But this one really is descriptive of it. Verse 7, how shall, I, or how shall I pardon thee for this? Thy children have forsaken me and sworn by them that are no gods. When I had, uh, well, lost my place. When I had fed them in, to the full, they had committed adultery and assembled themselves by troops, notice that, by troops in the harlots' houses. That's a very, when you look at that picture, I mean, it really describes the idea of people almost in rank and file marching down to the local house of prostitution to commit adultery. But notice as he goes on. They were as fed horses in the morning, everyone neighed after his neighbor's wife. If you've been around animals, and I have, and if you've been around horses, and I have, you know that one of the things, a horse is given to eating. It's a big animal. So one of the first orders of business, when it gets up, wakes up, and it doesn't really get up because it's standing already, but when it wakes up and starts its day, it wants to eat. When it gets its belly full, when it's satisfied, then it starts looking around for other pleasures. Now, I won't go any further than that. But you understand exactly what's going on here. And what he's saying is the people are just like that. They were like fed horses in the morning. A fed horse, a horse that's just eaten its hay and its oats and is satisfied, is a very docile animal, usually for a short period of time. It digests that food. And you can walk up to that animal, even a big stallion, And you pet it and all of that kind of thing. And it's usually pretty docile for a little period of time. And then when it digests that food and it turns into energy, then it wants to go. They're like fed horses in the morning. And then notice, everyone neighed after his neighbor's wife. It goes on. Shall I not visit them for these things, says the Lord? And shall not my soul be avenged on such a nation as this? God is describing the adultery in the land, and it's rampant. They're like animals, literally. And they're like animals that have been blessed, and they're filled to the full. They've got what they want, and so now they start looking around to take that energy that should be used for God, should be used for decent and moral things, should be used to live the life that God meant them to live, and yet what they're doing is they're taking all of that energy like an animal and saying, let me run out and sin. And let me do it with my neighbor's wife. That's the idea here. In chapter 7, if we go back to the, the temple address and we look at verse 9 again, as God says, will you, will you steal, murder, and commit adultery? And then walk into my house and say, I've been delivered. I've been blessed by God. I've been protected by God. To do this? That's what God is saying to them. Did I do all of this? Did I bless you in this way? Did I give you everything I've given you so you can run out and do this? And that's exactly what they were doing. No shame 
No ability even to blush. Go back with me to chapter 6. And this is an interesting verse. If you look down at verse 15 of chapter 6, when he says, Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed. Neither could they blush. I want you to stop for a moment and think about that. You know, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we often quote 1 Timothy 2, and we talk about modest apparel. But there's another term there. And the term is shamefacedness. And that word means the ability to be ashamed, to blush, to get red-faced. There was a time, and I remember it, even in my lifetime. A lot of you older, you, you know this even better than I do. There was a time when people did all these disgusting things we're talking about tonight. They did it, but they wanted to keep it hidden. Where members of the church, for example, where Christians would walk into a place and they may do all these things, but they didn't want you to find out about it. They didn't want you to know of the disgusting things that they had been out doing. But now, now it's done And the first thing is, you hear about it on Facebook. You'll see it. People are proud of it. And they will proudly tell you of what they do. And they will graphically describe what they do. And there's no shame. And there's no blushing. Think about this. How long has it been since, other than a preacher, perhaps, or you, perhaps... Have you heard someone even use the word blush? Red-faced. We may talk about red-faced of getting caught at something. But the idea of being ashamed of something where a person would look at me and look down on me because of something I'm doing and I would get that rush of blood to my face so I would literally be red-faced, I would blush. When is the last time you even heard somebody talk about that? I can't tell you the last time I even heard the word. Jeremiah is told by God, go tell these people. They're not ashamed. They don't even blush at what they do. No shame. No ability to get red in the face, to feel bad about it, to want someone to not know. They just don't care. And besides, everybody else does it too, so why should I be ashamed of it? Why should I care if you know about it? And the idolatry. And I'm not going to spend a long time on it because I'm going to come back and talk about the This book is a treatise on Jewish idolatry. But just in this chapter alone, some of the things that are said, and again, I'm not going to talk a long time about it. But if you notice down in verse 18, he talks about the children, the mom, the dad, whole family gets in on the idolatry. As he goes on in this chapter, Going back to chapter six or to verse six on the latter part of the verse, the, the shedding of innocent blood. And sometimes people will look at that and say, Oh, well that wasn't literal killing of children. Well go down with me very quickly, if you will, to verse thirty one. When he says Yeah, chapter seven and verse thirty one, they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the house of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire which I commanded them not, neither came it even into my heart to do such a thing. 
And therefore, behold, the day is come, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be called Tophet, nor the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they shall bury in Tophet, till there be no place. What God is saying here is these people have reached a point where not even love for their child stops their actions. And I think about that. When I say it like that, I say, as I look around me, does the love for one son or daughter stop the actions of people today? Oh, a person may not even think. It, I mean, it may not even occur to them to take their child down and have a statue with outstretched arms like Molech was with a great fire burning under it so that the, even the arms were scalding hot and lay an infant on there till it literally fried to death. They may not even think about doing such a thing. It'd be hideous. But spiritually speaking, what do we do? What do we do and what do we show our children so that we lose their souls? And without thought, without care. I want to do what I want to do. I want to have what I want to have. I want to be what I want to be. And it doesn't matter the effect on my child. When I think about it like that, I wonder how different I am. Or we are as a nation from these Jews so long ago. But let's go back to... This point, of, uh, we've mentioned it numerous times, trust in lying words. I believe what God is describing in Jeremiah 7 is the idea of, of, of willfully being self-deluded. That they've created a delusion. They think a certain thing. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. And there is that false sense of security that comes from deluding yourself. And so you think that way. And I believe the idea, I want you to read with me very quickly. Go to Matthew, you can hold your finger, I'm coming right back. But let me read a couple of verses, and I won't even need to do commentary. Matthew 24 and verse 1. Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. Look at Mark's account in Mark 13. Mark 13 and verse 1. Same account. Mark recording a couple of other things that were said. And as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Now go over to Luke chapter 24, or 21 rather. Luke 21. And go down with me to verse 5. Luke 21 and verse 5. And as some spake of the temple... And, it will add, and, and how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts. You hear all of that? They're impressed with the temple. Forty and six years this temple has been in building at one point in John chapter 2. It was a temple that was constantly being worked on and beautified. And we would use the term renovated. And they were impressed with it. Religion had become the temple. Not unlike many religions in our country or around the world. It had become the temple and they were impressed with it and it was beautiful and you could look at it and you could say the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord are these. This belongs to God. Therefore, by extension, this whole place is protected. I'm fine. You see. Like people might say today and used to say a lot. This is God's nation. This country was built and founded by 
by God leading people here. That's the way people used to feel about it. And there was a false sense of security then that God was going to protect it. And you can do anything you want to do because God will not let America fail. You believe that? You look back in history and you look at every major civilization there has ever been on any continent in this world, and where is it? Do you believe that? Do you believe this nation can fail too? And do you believe that it comes down to exactly what God was saying to this one at this point in time? Amend your ways and your doings. Don't trust in lying words when the people who for hire get out there and tell you everything's all right. It's going to be fine. Don't believe that. You listen to me when I tell you to do what's right, and I'll bless you. Notice as he goes on in this chapter, just a couple more things, and I'll close. And the idea here of you trust in lying words, verse 8 Notice this, we read it a moment ago. That cannot profit. That's interesting to me. You trust in lying words that cannot profit. You can't gain from this. You like it. You want to believe it. It feels good to you. It sounds good to you. It makes you feel good. But it cannot profit you. But yet you want to believe it, so that's where you put your trust. Or notice again when he says, go down to verse 23 in this chapter. When he says, but this thing I commanded them. And I said, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people. Now he's talking about when he brought them out of Egypt. And walk you in all the ways that I have commanded you that it may be well with you. But notice verse 24. But they hearkened not. They didn't listen. Nor inclined their ear. But they walked in the counsels and in the imagination of their evil heart. And they went backward and not forward. You know what God is saying here is, I told you what would get you ahead. I told you that. And I told you if you wanted to be blessed and you wanted everything that I have the power to give you, then you listen to what I say and do what I say. And they didn't want to listen to that. And they began to imagine all kinds of things. And the imaginations of their heart made them go backwards. Again, I say, look at, look at what can happen to a nation of people. And when people get, and I would just su- suggest this to you, but when people get progressive, quote-unquote, in their thought, what generally happens in a nation? Oh, we think. We get progressive, and we're going to move the nation forward, and it's going to prosper and this and that. What generally happens? God said to the Jews, you went back. And not full. And finally, notice down in verse 28, because this one is scary. But you will say unto them, This is a nation that does not obey the voice of the Lord their God, nor receive correction. Now notice, truth is perished and is cut off from their mouth. I get you to go home and you've got the tools on your computers and so forth. Look up this word perished. It's an interesting one. Because it doesn't mean that truth left them all at once. What it literally means is they had the truth and it wandered away from them. It's like somebody getting off course and getting lost. 
And the truth just kind of wandered away. It means little bit by little bit by little bit they sacrifice the truth. So that now there's no truth in their mouth. They walk in through the gates of the temple. They look at the big beautiful buildings. They have a sense of security. False. But they have it that God is with them. God is for them. God is going to protect them. And there's not a thing in the world that can happen. It's all in God's hands. And let God take care of us. And God is saying, I will. If you do what's right. It's conditional. If you're here tonight, and you're not a child of God, and you listen to a lesson such as this, and you say, man, that's a bleak picture. can be. And it was for these people. I'm not convinced, certainly, that it has to be for me personally in my life, or for you. I'm not even convinced it has to be for this nation. I'm not so cynical that I look around and say, you know, and no hope. Because I think there is. But I do know this. If you're sitting here tonight and you want your life to prosper, you want the best that there can be for your life, you've got to be faithful to God. You've got to do what God says. You've got to listen to Him and obey Him. You've got to submit to Him. And I know that's true for a church. I know that's true for a nation. I know that's true for anybody and everybody in the world. And that God is not going to bless us if we don't do that. You're here and you're not a Christian. Confess your belief in Jesus. And begin to repent today. Start changing your life and amending your ways, as it were, and live your life for the Lord. Be baptized. Have your sins washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. And start a new life in Christ. And if you're here and you've done all of that, and maybe you're like these people to any degree, you might say, I'm not as bad as that. Great. You know, that's great. But if you're looking at your life and you're saying, honestly, if I don't turn some things away, I could be like that. Then now is the time to stop. Now is the time to turn to the Lord. Please come while we stand and sing.